This podcast is brought to you by Rode Microphones, providing premium audio products at an accessible price, enabling people from around the world to achieve their creative goals. With mics for studio, video recording, and podcasting, you're bound to find the mic you need. To find out more, visit Rode.com. Hello and welcome to the Soundworks Collection interview series. My name is Michael Coleman and this week we're featuring the 2015 Mix Magazine Presents Sound for Film event hosted at Sony Picture Studios in Culver City. This event focused on a theme of the art of sound design, music, dialogue, and effects in an immersive world. The topic of this third roundtable discussion is on dialogue recording, which included tips and techniques from production through the edit and onto the final mix, with an emphasis on how they all strive to keep the production track and work with post to form the basis of any sound design. This panel was moderated by Jeff Wexler and featured Lee Orloff, Terry Dorman, Gary Bourgeois, Marla McGuire, and Steven Thibault. You can find out more about this year's Sound for Film event returning to Sony Picture Studio on September 17th at mixsoundforfilm.com. I hope you enjoy. So uh, I wanted to say that um, unlike some panel discussions where there's a set of questions in advance that we ask of each participant so they can give the, I want this to be um, a lot looser and more conversational as much as the format will, uh, um, will provide for us. Um, so that I think uh, even if, you know, for example, I may ask Leo Orloff a question about something, if, if something strikes one of you as a place to interject, you know, of course, no overlaps, um, but uh, you know, <laughs> feel, <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to chime in with uh, uh, with something if it's uh, you know because it, it it could lead us in, in interesting areas, um, and also um, one of the main um, purposes for most of the things that CAS does as an organization um, uh, is to lessen that gap that exists between production sound and post sound. Um, it's a gap which has been, as far as I can tell over the last 46 years that I've been doing it, um, is getting wider and wider um, for a whole lot of reasons. Some of them, some of them are political, some of them are economic, um, some of them relate to um, um, you know, these uh, egocentric post people that figure, uh, well, <laughs> you know, it's all shit but I can save it. Um, you know, rather than, you know, rather than letting us in production save it so that it doesn't have to be saved. Um, so uh, all of our discussion today will, will uh, relate to that sort of collaboration that seems to have gone away. Um, and uh, I mean, fortunately, most of the people on the panel uh, have been very successful in keeping this collaboration going for the most part, uh, which is one of the reasons why I think we've had the careers that, that we have and most of us continue to have. You know, although I'm in semi-retirement, um, <laughs> partially uh, out of choice and partially just because I'm not getting as many calls. Um, but uh, also, and, and I go back far enough that um, uh, all this sort of collaboration was much easier because first of all, we were, it was a much simpler world. Um, you know, th this was way before the discussions take the form of, you know, th the word workflow wasn't even in our vocabulary, you know, or time code, frame rates. Um, you know, media delivery, all these things. Because we really, in production, we really only had one way of doing things. Um, now there's a multitude of ways of doing things and uh, we also have to use all of them just to even stay afloat. Um, so I don't know where we start, whether, um, uh, you know, Gary, would you like to start? I, I just wanted to mention that uh, uh, prior to us coming up here, we were in a... Uh, uh, an anteroom and having a discussion amongst ourselves about what we might talk about. Um, so we, we, we discussed it all, we came to a conclusion and we don't need to be here anymore. Um, <laughs> but We really enjoyed each other. Yeah, we really awesome. enjoyed it. Um, and, and I'm fearful that, uh, that we uh, hold back on uh, anything because what was brought out in that room before we got in here uh, was some really, really good essential stuff. Um, so, Terry, why don't you start about what, what we were talking What's about? Essential? I just called you out. I, I, th I think the key thing is what, what we talked about is that it's a circle of talent. It starts with the production mixer, it moves into editorial, first to the picture editor and the picture department, and then into editorial, and then 
into mixing. But if we all do our jobs and we are all are responsible to each other and realize that one affects the other craft and the end result, we all look good. And I think a, a key thing in my entire career is keeping that collaboration going and making sure that there's communication between the production mixer, the, the dialogue editor, the sound editor, and the, and the re-recording mixer. Um, I specifically enjoy talking to production mixers who are on the set. I've, I've visited a set. I've um, seen what the problems are. Uh, in certain cases, I can't see what all the problems are because every, every film has its elements. Um, and I like the exchange between the production mixer that comes to see me because then they see that their work matters to someone. Someone's reading your notes, someone's following your, your logic and, and track assignment and is looking for the best quality of sound to present to a re-recording mixer who eventually is going to get it all balanced. You know, you're, you're including them on the team. I mean, because, Everyone. Because it's a team effort. Um, and there are so many forces at work to break up that team, uh, even though you, you are, you're, you're all on the same playing field, even if you know, we're in production and we're on the set and you're in a little dirty room somewhere with you know, your computer and whatever. Um, we're on the same team. You know, and it's also the crews that are involved within those teams. Like, I don't want to diminish the engineers or the mix techs or the boom operators. Everybody is involved Absolutely. in the overall soundtrack of a film. So if you're talking about sound design, it's all of us. It's not one guy coming up with one sound. It's everybody. Although Mark, Mark did have a lot of good things to say this morning, even though I think he, again, tended to marginalize uh, our contribution in dialogue. But, you know, hey, he's a sound designer. <laughs> Go, Steve. Um, oh, I was just going to say one of the things we were talking about in the room that I thought was great, um, Stephen Lee and Lee in particular, about the evolution of 20 years ago, we would just get a mix track, we being post-production sound. Um, and now with the schedules in production being so crushed, you know, now there's ISOs. and Multicams. Multicams and you can't get a boom in. So I just wanted to hear from you guys a little bit about that. Um. First off, um, I wanted to talk about the collaboration, and then I'll then I'll go to go go to that. Um, on Modern Family, we have a great workflow. I mean, I get copies of the um, studio network cut of of an episode before it um, before it mixes and goes on the dub stage, and I make notes and give that to our supervising sound editors and um, uh, the associate producer, so that these notes can be addressed. Um, I can tell the re-recording mixer that, hey, on this, this take, um, um, there might have been a little bit of phasing, go to boom two, and it's clean there. It's a shorthand, it you know, speeds everything up. So, so, so beyond your, your normal sort of sound report, uh, in the old days it wasn't necessary to have anything more, any more of those notes uh, because we were dealing with one track and we were dealing with, you know, hopefully um, a, a really good mix. Um, but, you know, in today's world, uh, those, those notes have to be amazingly valuable because you were there on the set doing what you were doing. And, um, again, it's including the team. You know, so it's yeah, and also sometimes I'll, I'll get a production mixer who will email me about an episode that I'm not going to get for another month or something. Absolutely. And they'll say, in episode 205, wow, <laughs> you know, you're probably going to have to loop this or whatever. And then I have a heads up and I can just file it away in my folder for 205. And when I get to that... You know, or maybe he'll say something like, and we did a wild track. Well, in these kind of really crushed schedules, I might not have the time to really look at every sound report. I get a show on Saturday that mixes on Monday. <laughs> um, but if I've gotten that email communication from him, then I can go, wow, I know there's a wild track. Get it in there and maybe not have to ADR the whole thing. So and, that's and absolutely. And in, in, in uh, keeping with the idea that we're all dealing with uh, abbreviated schedules, both in production and post, um, the little things that we can do on the set to control the environment and get away from that notion of we'll fix it later, 
there isn't the time to fix things later, and it's not always the best thing anyway. The best thing is for you in post to be able to use your creative talents best to do a wonderful job and not spending all the time fixing things that could have been done correctly in the first place. So what we need to do is raise the awareness on the set, and it's a collaborative effort. It's not, you know, people like to say, oh, we're doing this for sound. No, we're doing it for the movie. I'm trying to take my part and, and record that instrument, which is the actor's voice, and in the best possible way, give it to post-production so that that can emotionally convey the story in its best way. It's not for the sound department, it's for the final, it's for the audience. It, we take it to the audience. And it, there's so much that we can do to be collaborative on the set. You know, it's not that I, I wanna go back to single camera shooting, that's not gonna happen. We can <laughs> shoot multiple cameras intelligently. If, if everybody Absolutely. is on board, we can shoot the wide shots and then go in for cross coverage, whatever, so that you can, I'm not saying that the only track is a boom track, but we can think about how the sound department is conveying that, you know, is, is bringing that recording of the, audio, of the actor's performance to post and to the audience. And, and, and underneath all of that is, um, is the effort to not marginalize and to not lose the value of the production soundtrack. In other words, I, I'm a firm believer that it's a lot more than just understanding the words. If it really were just the words, we'd be better off with silent movies, with a title card. I mean, if, if the dialogue, if all the dialogue was doing to tell the story um, was the words, you know, the, 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 the literary value. But that's not, it. Uh, uh, a properly recorded um, performance tells you so much about that character, the way they feel, the way they're relating to their fellow actors, um, all sorts of things, even, even when they're not talking. Dynamics, uh, well, right? I mean, and, this is, and I was gonna take this and, and, and hand it off to Gary, but as, as an instrument, one of the wonderful things about the voice is how dynamic it is. Well, they, uh, we were when we were talking earlier, I was saying, um, these guys give me the material to work with. And Thankfully, the sort of attitude that you have where you're trying to give me something really good and I just make it better is a whole lot better than just something to try and fix. Yes, I can fix certain things, but that's not my intent. That's not my job definition. Um, and when Lee mentioned that the, and also Jeff, that the voice is an instrument, when I go into a mix and I'm doing dialogue, this is exactly what I uh, view it as it's an instrument and if I clean out everything that masks that instrument and makes it clear not just the words but from what part of the body is this person speaking they're speaking from the throat they're speaking from the chest they're speaking from their heart and if you can't strip away and find that essence of that character and make the sound transmit the communication that that character, that actor is trying to get across, you've lost it. If you can do that, then the voice becomes like an instrument within the context of the whole film. And I try to have a consistency in timbre throughout the whole process I want to make sure, obviously, that there's a clarity to everything that's said to try and strip away things that are in the way. Even so much as not just the production, but if there's effects playing and they're going by, a car goes by at the same time, they're saying something key, I might just dip the peak of the car and I might take the top end off so we feel the car goes by, but it doesn't interfere with the clarity of the dialogue. And if you can approach everything throughout the whole process in a way that says that the voice is just as important as the words being spoken. That clarity, the margin between all that's going on and the intimacy of what's being said. There's an intimacy even to somebody yelling and whispering. They should be in within a certain pocket with a certain range, but more than anything else, you should be able to get a feeling as much as listening. It's, yeah, in one second, Marlo. But it, it, it all, it, what it is, is the production 
the, the dialogue track, whether it's production or whether it's ADR, um, is giving us those cues that we have in real life when we relate to people. Uh, and when you lose too many of those cues, um, things get very flat. Things lose their people life. Tune out. People will tune out. Go ahead, Marla. Uh, yeah, and to that point, uh, we have some wonderful tools these days, like Isotope RX4 Advanced, and now uh, 5, I think, is coming out. And they're fantastic, and they work really well for eliminating unwanted pops and clicks and noises and everything. But to both your points, sometimes if we apply them too often or too harshly or too deep, then you take the life out of the dialogue track itself. And some of these cues that you're talking about, whether it's just a little teeny noise in the lips, like a lip smack that's part of the performance, but now we've brushed over the soundtrack because we're in a hurry with these great tools, but we've kind of masked some of those beautiful frequencies. It, it's the stuff that we've fallen in love with. That's why we do, you know, I mean, one thing that Mark Mangini said this morning was the joy of sound. Um, and I think that even at whatever level we're working at, there has to be that joy that you've actually gotten something that is telling you something that, uh, you know. And it, well, there's a joy of sound in, in dialogue as well because it's, you're following a director's intent, an actor's performance, and a feeling, and all of that's in the production track, so it's a puzzle. And finding, finding those, those small little things like a person's breath or an, in, an inhale, an exhale, or a pause is intricate in dialogue editing. And I think, I think the idea of we're not fixing the track as much as... We're creating something. Creating it and improving it Enhancing and it. giving the very best um, element of what was recorded to a, a recording mixer to an audience. Exactly what Lee said. It's for the audience. And that in the dialogue, in the words, is the story. And you can't ever take that away. So... Well, um, I'd like to add also for um, a lot of people starting out, uh, you now have infinitely more tools available to you than we ever had. Infinitely more complex as well. Much more complex. Um, certainly because you have the tools doesn't make you an expert at using them. And that you, you know that already. It's kind of a um, philosophical platform and an attitude that one must take and say, just because it was recorded that way doesn't mean it has to sound that way. I can manipulate the heck out of this. But what is it I really want to do and what is it we're really trying to say? And if something is harsh, take the harshness out. If something's thin, try to warm it up. Um, and always realize that um, you have this thing called taste available to you, you should use it. Quite often I'll go and hear something somebody's done, it just lays there, well that's the original recording. It's like, well you have the right to make it, just like a color timer can make snow red, we have the ability to go completely in different directions. Use it with taste and use it to your advantage. We have to we have to be careful with the new tools. I think that's that's confusing an issue right now. That as as a dialogue editor, a dialogue supervisor, I, I'm real reticent to use some of the tools because I don't want to mix. I don't want to tie someone's hands, and I think um, with the technology changing, I think the thing that this whole panel has is history. We have years of experience, and uh, coming from film through the generation of, of machines and digital technology and all that stuff. Uh, I've, I don't know about anybody else, but I've carried with me all the stuff that I learned and I was doing in film. I do it now digitally, but I am very reticent about using things that will EQ uh, tracks before they get to a, a stage because the the panels are more equipped to do this. I don't want to be doing this. I want I, to be cutting. I, I wanted to bring up something. We've worked together, Terry so, and I, on the Pirates of the Caribbean series. Um, in order to make those um, boats appear that they were moving, these uh, set, set um, pieces, these boats that were not moving, we created the illusion of movement by 
having smoke go by. And so when the camera would, would basically make a move, you would see the smoke, which looked like clouds, go by. It created the illusion that the boats were moving. Well, to create the smoke, we had these multiple small vessels that had Briggs and Stratton lawnmower engines on them, basically. And they were all over the place. They were in the, they were in the harbor. They were on every side of the boat. At some point, it became obvious that even though we're doing a period piece, there was the sound of mechanized 20th century two-stroke engines on the track. And if you listen closely, they didn't EQ it out. They covered it with the sound of the water hitting the hull, the, the, um, the sound of the wind in the sails. I can hear under the dialogue the smoker boats throughout the entire film. But what was left was the humanity. The voice didn't get emasculated by ripping all that stuff out, trying to clean it up to the point where we've got a clean track. Who cares? No, the brain is going to tune it out. We have the ability as an audience to say, I don't want to listen to that. I want to listen to the actor, and I want to hear everything else that's going on. You don't need to stomp it and, and take the life out of it. And that was, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's all over the film. Oh, yeah. Smoker boats. <laughs> well, that, that's a truly creative way to approach it um, because... Again, it's it's a recognition of the value of that of that production track. Um, if you can make it if you can make it work, you don't want to dismiss it too easily, you know. That's it. <laughs> That's not it. That's not it. I'm not done. That's all we know. That's all we know. Yeah. Um, let me touch on the. Um, uh, we've mentioned technology a lot because we are a, a, a technical craft. Um, and um, originally, I thought that the, um, the beginning topic would be that we're going to discuss the state of the art with hopefully emphasis on the art. I think we've actually done that, even without me announcing it as such. Um, but our relationship with the technology, it's been very enabling um, uh, for all of us in production and in post in that we can do things that we could never have done before. But it's also, um, we tend to get fascinated with um, with the state of the art of our gear. You know, I'm using the latest digital recorder. I've got the greatest plug-in, which someone even has declared a game changer. Well, the fact of the matter is the game has been changing a lot. And a lot of those changes are not under our directive at all. Uh, the, a lot of this technology has also enabled all sorts of other departments, the camera department, um, um, visual effects, uh, you know, all sorts of things. Um, that uh, and a lot of those things have worked against us being able to produce certainly in production um, the sort of tracks that any of us that have been around as long as some of us have been around um, uh, would like to be able to produce. And we also don't we 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 lack the for the most part we lack the respect and the understanding from the rest of the movie making um, uh, you know the, the rest of the crew that um, what they're doing is really hurting hurting the soundtrack, and it's not, it's not just, you know, uh, getting control over the set and making sure all the doors and windows are closed and going on a red light and all that sort of stuff. Uh, there, are, there are regular things as part of the process that need to be addressed that are sort of being lost. But, um, you know, and the other rule in production sound recording that we always have to adhere to, and this goes to what Gary was saying when he's trying um, and uh, very successfully mixing you know, the, the, the final show, is that in production, um, it, it, it's, it, it's, much easier, it's much easier to add things later to the soundtrack um, than to take things away that, that, are, that, are, that are obstacles to us getting the dialogue the way we really want it. But, you know, in today's way of shooting, there are obstacles everywhere. You know, there, there, there are landmines before you even get off the truck. You know, I mean, it's just... Incredible, the places that people are willing to shoot movies right. these uh, days. I just wanted to mention that, um, uh, I think it was Lee that mentioned it, but, uh, or maybe it was Mark uh, Ilano, but uh, it's a really great idea for production mixers to come and see what the post-production mixers can do. Because um, quite often there's a great struggle on the part of any one craft to do a whole lot of things that just are simply not necessary to do. And we have all this technology, we could do all sorts of different things. But quite often, um, I've had a production mixer come and sit and watch me work and go, my God, you can get rid of that? And I'm like, oh yeah, that takes two seconds. And they're like, 
but I struggle so hard, you know, to give you a, a cleaner, you know, fl noise floor. And I say, well, no, I can get rid of the noise floor in a second, you know. Um, the other big thing for me, and you, this is regarding what you're just talking about and having the ability to do so much and have so much control of the technology and whatnot, is that um, I find that, um, I hate to say this, there's probably at least one picture editor in the audience, um, but picture editors have so much control now uh, with Pro Tools and uh, with while they're cutting picture, they're adding all sorts of effects and they're doing their own mixes and all that sort of stuff. And then unfortunately what happens is that there's an attitude that comes along into the, the mix that is, my work as a picture editor is so good that I don't want you to actually improve. Just replicate what I've done. And also the director, the like, director has fallen in love with all this work also. They fall in love with it, but they, are, they become closed-minded to the fact that you can bring something much more to the table, mm -hmm. something very creative, something very experiential, another way of looking at something. It's, I'm not saying that what the picture editor has necessarily done was bad because quite often it's really cool. And it's a great template for us to look at and say, I see what you're going for. Let me, let me really go for that now and make it like really knock you out. Um, and all I ever ask is that, yes, you've got the tools, but realize that the people that you're gonna be working with bring something else to the table. Be open-minded enough to realize that that person has a voice and can make it better. Again, again the, the technology has enabled uh, the picture editor to do stuff that no picture, you know, certainly no picture editor working on a moviola, anybody know what a moviola is? Um, uh, would ever have been able to do, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't have tried um, because it would have been a disaster. But, you know, and the same thing happened to, to, picture, to picture editors when... Uh, when the first nonlinear systems came in, you know, Avid finally uh, pretty much won out, but there were a number of c competitive systems going on, and there were other, you know, there were uh, directors and producers that felt, well, you know, I can, I can be a picture editor, you know, I can, I can grab that mouse, I can do all those things. Well, it didn't make them an editor. I mean, the technology does not make you an editor or a sound mixer, um, <laughs> you know, so it's... Yeah, that is interesting. You know, 20 years ago when I was doing this, we didn't have the picture editor's tracks. Um, we would just do everything from scratch, and then if they were in love with a phone ring or something, I'd have to call the picture department and say, what phone ring did you, did you do? And then we'd put it on a D88 and give it to Bubba. Right. <laughs> and fly that in. But yeah. none of this, not to, only had to appease them that way, do we have to carry the AAFs, but now we have to build it and clean it. Um, so I try to approach it with you know, keeping with the spirit of what they're going for, if not the exact sounds that might not be, you know, as good as what we can do. Uh, earlier, um, when we talked earlier in the week, um, we were talking about capture. Oh, yeah. um, A word that I... And, and just because we have uh, um, the ability to put 12 wires on people and put it over our shoulder, that doesn't make you a mixer. That, that, that's more, more capture. I mean... To, to capture the essence of that performance and so forth, you need to be able to mix. <laughs> Your hands need to be free to do it. So, well, there, there's a uh, there's a, a, a great quote from Ray Charles that I actually use as my signature, um, uh, various places where um, he said, you know, the name of the game is how does it sound. He says, I don't care if you got 90 tracks, how does it sound, baby? And I've really taken that to heart because you know we need to we we, we can't have the technology um, be dictating. Um, you know, all the things that, uh, uh, you know, even if we can get the job done quicker and all that, you still have to have that vision. Every, every, every movie um, is the image and the sound. Uh, you know, the sound has its own, its own vision. You know, we don't want to, um, we don't want that all just to become sort of an automatic, you know. The, the whole idea that, well, I've got all these tracks, I can put, um, well, it's, <laughs> you know, it's you know what I'm saying. It, it, it's funny. I use a lot of tracks on Modern Family, um, but it's purposeful. Um, you know, when I get the whole family together, we wire twelve actors or thirteen actors, or I mean, I've even had twenty-four. <laughs> but it doesn't mean I'm using each of those. Um, I try to get everything on the boom, and um, we spread it out over 
anywhere from two booms or, or a single boom to seven. Um, when we did connection lost, I had seven boom operators out there um, to capture the performance. And, um, and you, you won know, an Emmy. I'll, I'll <laughs> Someone like Fortunately, yes. I don't mean to embarrass you. <laughs> <laughs> but you had to fight for that, right? You, you know, had to go to them and say, need I, I did have to fight for it, but you know, the, the episode dictated that, you know, you're having FaceTime conversations and it needed to be on a boom. It needed to sound open. You yeah, couldn't again, force that again, perspective. That, that, that fighting for it, um, first of all, you have to be, you have to have the knowledge to understand what you're what doing, you need. first of all. I mean, I, I would not want to see some inexperienced production sound mixer stand up and start trying to fight for something where they're already not really on track properly. Um, but you, you need to be, you need to have, there's, there's skill involved in this fight. Um, and that's why I think all of us are sort of survivors and still are able to work, even with all the new technology, even with all the tracks, we're still able to deliver something that, uh, that is meaningful uh, and that works, you know, so. Before we started shooting um, the reference footage for Rango, where we basically uh, shot for about a month and a half, on uh, an empty soundstage with uh, some set pieces. Um, we recorded in that empty stage with multiple booms um, and we sent that to the dub stage. And we sent it all the way through because we said, this is how your movie's going to sound. Right. We're, we're not gonna put wires on these actors. We're gonna follow them around and it's gonna sound great because it's gonna sound like a movie as opposed to an animated film where each of the actors was brought in a booth. And we're going to have perspective, we're going to have ensemble, we're going to have all that that you don't. But I want you guys to understand, this is what you're going to get. So before we started day one, we did the test, and we, we handed across, and, and, and everybody... And, and the everybody's, results were groundbreaking, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. It, it was one of the best sounding things I've ever heard. It's, it, you did a great job. <laughs> uh, but it, it's, it's what I'm saying is that if you get everybody involved and... and uh, you know, you can make those choices because you have to say, I'm going to need multiple boom. I know it's not in your budget, but that's the way we're going to do it because that's going to give us the best results. And it's really going to help. The, the audience is going to forget that they're watching animation. They're going to feel right. and, emotionally and, that, they're, that these lizards and, and snakes and, and birds are alive. You, you have an advantage, though, when you, start, when you work with the same directors over and over because then they respect you and they listen to you. Because. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, best, the best of all worlds is when you're working with the same people and you're working with, I mean, the director is, is, is obviously one of the most important people, obviously, on any production. Um, if they are involving you, even if you're just like the lowly production sound mixer, but they're involving you at a level of collaboration that is way beyond just, you know, it's taken for granted that I'll record good sound for them. I mean, it's, you know, I'm not, you know, I've been doing it long enough that they'll get something and it'll be definitely usable. But... When, when, um, when the director asks me, for example, how was it for you, they know that they're going to get an answer that's not just like, yeah, it was, it was good, you know, the, you know, it sounded good. They're going to they're get my take on whether the scene worked or not, um, whether those performances worked. Um, and, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's a different level of collaboration. I've just been very lucky to have that. You, you want to uh, just... For what it's worth, it's sort of like a lesson that I see now that uh, the reality in the past was that film crews, picture, sound, whatever, were loaded with characters. <laughs> there were great stories that came out of those times because everybody was a character. And it was um, encouraged. And what you you know, brought to the table was who you were. And a lot of the picture editors, the mixers, you could talk about the stories because they were all serious characters in lots of ways. But it was encouraged to have a collaborative effort and an opinion. And if you really didn't like something, you could, at least if you expressed why, and it had validity and it didn't have an agenda behind it, that it would be a considered point. I've found over the last little while that there, the sign over the door that used to say characters welcome has become, you know, um, followers welcome. Uh, and that there's 
far less characters involved in the whole process and the input of the various levels of crafts has diminished. Now, that's almost equal with the um, shortened schedules, the less money, the less ability to take the time to do things. But more importantly, um, I've seen an attitude with uh, many you know, producers and others where they are simply not interested in your input. I think it is incumbent upon us as creative people, as uh, entertainers, that we start to let our voices be heard again. Don't be so afraid of losing your job. Maybe you'll be appreciated more. Your value will be understood more if you just, you know, diplomatically at least have an opinion. I hear too many people not being heard. So, how, Gary, how do you, how do we forge those relationships that can foster that sort of collaboration and? How, how do you how do you try and find those people that you can work with who uh, value your input? Well, uh, I think first of all, uh, you, you have to have something decent to say. <laughs> um, simply because uh, it, you know. But here's the thing: is when somebody says, "What do you think?" If you just give the same politically correct answer that doesn't have come from your heart then eventually somebody's not going to be asking you. Yeah, you're sabotaging your own You're sabotaging your own, your own ability, yeah, yeah, opportunity. So think about it. Add something that's cogent. That's all. Choosing to work with the same crew and the same group of people because of appreciation is a, is a key, too. I mean, I reached a point in my career where I like working with people that appreciate what I do. Um, I would think everybody likes that. And I feel a tremendous uh, responsibility in explaining dialogue because I think we're diminished. The production track and the dialogue is diminished because if it's seamless, they don't think it's a problem. It's not going to be a problem later. So therefore, there's no, uh, there's less respect. I don't know. It's It's a little... Yeah. Difficult to if feel. We make it, kind of become if we enablers. Make it too easy. <laughs> yeah. Almost people almost you know assume that they could do it. You know, and I was talking to somebody about this young lady in the audience here um, just yesterday, and I, you know, we were talking, and I said, I'm here visiting because I'm setting up the board. The amount of setup time is directly related to how my sound is translated. And when somebody comes in and is unaware of all the effort that you've put in technically, what your choices you've made, what plugins you use, et cetera, et cetera, when they come in and just see you just raise the fader, they say, oh, I could do that. <laughs> and yes, you can, but you have no idea how much experience and thought has gone into every facet of when you raise that fader. Because the original and what I raise are completely different things. Well, in, in production, it's even worse because I mean, anybody, anybody with their phone can record something and have an image and have it in sync. Uh, you know, so it's... And as more people try and do this on their own with their phone, <laughs> then they appreciate you more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I did want to hear a little bit more from Lee. We were talking earlier about some production challenges like for example, you know, there might be a transmitter on a camera that uh, wirelessly goes to video village that emits like a horrible, let's say, well, wine. It, it, it's, then... it's what I was saying is that yeah. um, it's easy for um, the process to get uh, wrapped up in itself and lose perspective on all the moving parts. And all the moving parts are equally important. And so even though the director of photography um, gets a better parking space than I do, that doesn't allow him to make decisions um, that affect my work. And I've had to sometimes bring up the fact that the transmitter that he has on the camera that he's pushed into the actor's face has a fan on it, and that's not acceptable. Even if he says that he's never heard that from any other mixer, I'm not going to talk about who his other mixers were. It's a problem for me. And we need to get it off, and we need to hardwire it, because it's going to hurt the audience's experience. And there, time and time again, we have to come up 
to this point where we're working together, it's not for the sound department. I'm not taking the transmitter off for sound. I'm taking it off for the audience. Because again, if we get that sound and then we apply all these tools, we've taken some of the life out of the dialogue track that you've crafted so carefully. Part of the sound that makes it real is the sound of that voice in the room. And if that envelope is, dis is destroyed by EQ trying to rip out that fan, it's no longer there. So all we have now is the robot voice. Right, that whole left. dimension is lost. Right, um, and, and we go to great lengths to create a recording. We have all this bit depth now. We're all recording on tremendously, you know, wonderfully advanced equipment. Looks good on the spec sheet. But it does, it record, we don't have a noise floor like we had in analog. There's all, it, it's a wonderful medium, but it picks up everything. Let's not put all this dirt on it to the point where we have to then clean it up and lose the, the essence of the emotion that's there. And the voice, like I say, is a great instrument and it exists in space. It's not just here. It's as you walk through the space, it, you can feel it's, it, when it's right. It's, it's in a context and, um, uh, the problem, the problem comes when, again, where, where they like to shoot certain scenes. Um, for example, I build a two-wall set for somebody's bedroom. It happens to be right below the freeway where they're doing, later in the day, they're doing the, you know, the, the explosion. Um, and can you make that sound like Iris's bedroom? Um, no, you can't. Um, uh, we, we, we want to be able to at least make uh, the dialogue as neutral as possible, which used to happen just um, anyway, because you would shoot on sound stages, you would shoot in much quieter environments, and you could you could always add things, you could always dirty something up if you wanted to, but you really can't clean up something which is in the wrong context uh, and is fighting the character, it's fighting the space, it may be fighting what we see on the image. I see this, why does it sound that way? Um, you know, and, and the audience doesn't, they can't really analyze it, but it is affecting how they feel about that character. And uh... Part of that's our job, too, as production mixers to work with these other departments and educate your location manager, especially. Um, you know, I've got her with a um, SPL meter at, at yeah. locations now oh. and, and is telling me well in advance that this may be a problem or and, well, and the director won't change his mind? I, I've told countless production managers uh, that even though I'm, I'm a production sound mixer, I do my best work in pre-production. Um, you absolutely you know, do. But they still, because of budgets, because of all sorts of other um, myths about sound recording, they don't take you on the location scout. You, know? you don't get any chance to see that you know, you're planning on shooting here, you're planning on shooting scene 27 here, uh, you know. Yeah, I think you should tell the story about the cemetery that you oh, yeah. told in the back room well, with the traffic. Yeah. No. Um, I don't think we have the time. Okay. <laughs> All right, it's a good story. Ask him later. I have, I have too many, way too many stories. Uh, but, um, well, I will, I will tell you a, a very quick, quick story that relates to um, the, the lack of understanding from a lot of production sound mixers what actually goes on in the post process. And conversely, uh, I have met many post people who actually have no idea what goes on on the set. You know, they're the recipients of our work, but um, they've never even come to the set. They've never, um, and the very quick story, and this is back in the film days when we used to have camera noise, nothing like what we call camera noise now, but you know, the sound of the film going through, through the camera. Um, <laughs> A veteran re-recording mixer, and I won't name who it is, um, but had done hundreds and hundreds of movies, um, and it was working on the third movie that I had mixed. Um, he said, you know, something about, he says, your tracks are really great. He says, we never have any camera noise. Um, he says, we never have to clean out. And, and this is also when the, re, you know, the, the mixer used to do a lot of the cleaning up, which used to, you know, be even, you know, beyond what the sound editor had done and all that. And the picture editor wasn't doing any of it. But he said, we never have any camera noise. I never have to deal with that. Uh, why is that? And I said, it's Don. Uh, and he said, um, Don, is that some sort of digital uh, on <laughs> I said, no, Don Sufal, my boom operator. And he looked at me, and it was the first time in his career that he realized the boom operator can have an effect on whether he has camera noise or not. The boom operator is not just a guy with strong arms pointing the mic at the person who talks. Um, 
you know, and Don Sufall, who I've been working with for 37 years now, we've done 67 movies together. That's just one of the things you do as a boom operator, um, is you make sure that you're recording what you want to record. And I know people have visited the set and watched the microphone, and they've come to me and they said, is he doing the right thing, you know? Because you'll see the microphone doing these strange things. And I said, put on the headphones. They put on the headphones and they go, brilliant. You know, and I said, that's why Don is on every movie that I do, you know? There's nothing I can do back at the panel um, unless that microphone is working its magic. In, in the scenes where you're allowed to boom. <laughs> okay. Um, We're going to open it up to the audience if we... Yeah, let's, oh. let's do a little Q&A. Why not? This man was first and foremost. Hey, everybody. Um, two, two questions, if I may. Um, um, the most recent discussion is, how is the red camera allowed to be a movie camera on a, on a set? <laughs> um, that's of immediate concern because there isn't a lot you can do about that. Um, the other one is, the most depressing thing I've heard as a production mixer was talking to a, a, a dialogue editor on a pretty sizable studio franchise movie, and she said, well, Steve, you know, the first thing we do is get rid of your dialogue, your mix track. Now, we have all the ISOs and all the tracks in the world available to us, and I appreciate that they're going to be used. They're not just there for no reason, but... We do mix, after all. We don't always get it right 100% um, on the set, on the fly. But I'd like to think that we do make a contribution that's more than just capture. Um, so that to our representatives from the uh, editing craft. Thank you. <laughs> well, Steve, uh, I, for one, um, go to the mix track first. Um, you know, and if that all sounds great, then, then that's fantastic. Huh? Yeah, no, it's it's a win-win, and it's <laughs> and it's only when I run into problems or something happens, something goes off mic or whatever, you dig deeper into the ISO. So, I appreciate quite quite often work. for what it's worth, uh, and I'm the recipient of a lot of filtering before it gets to me. Um, I really enjoy the mix track, and I find that there's a much greater naturalness to that track than the ISOs. And when I go to the ISOs, I have to do a lot of work to make it blend with the good stuff that I got earlier. That's partially because we keep a boom up as a, as a baseline. Even if you're using wires, then, then you have that natural ambience over everything in that mix track. When we started out doing our job, we had to get the mix track right because we only had one track. It was only one track. Yep. That's, that's and, no, true. and nobody that, called it the mix track because uh, why would you? It was the track. The uh, my name on the call sheet is Mixer. <laughs> that's what they hire me to do. And that's the skill that we try to bring to the set every day, but it is to make that mixed track work so that you don't need to dig out. You know, of course, actors are human, and they may paraphrase, and they may jump in and surprise us in many ways. And also, but the, 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 the idea is that we try to get that mixed track to work. The, the shooting styles have made it um, almost impossible in certain situations to get a credible mix. Um, you know, you, you do your best. I mean, fortunately... Personally, I've not been on any of those jobs, but I've heard all the stories where you may have 10 or 11 wireless out there and it's a scene you don't, you know, your basic reality type situation, which unfortunately is creeping into almost all genres. Um, uh, it, it's, you know, it, it, there's a lot of reasons why the mix track often is not very good. Um, you know, not on any of the shows that we do, but. <laughs> I, I, I don't diminish any of the tracks. I just go for the best sound. Mm -hmm. And and the idea is having having the time to listen to them all, and reaching for the the very best quality of clarity and and um, uh, the quality of the voice is important to me. So I don't diminish any of your tracks at all. We have we have one more over here. Hi, um, this question has to do with uh, scenes that are shot outside and ADR inside. Uh, a quick example of this. I saw a movie a couple of years ago, I will not say what it was, a Western uh, that was shot almost completely outside, and something disastrous must have happened to the production track because they ADR'd 90% of the movie, and they ADR'd it inside in a small room. And I think I was the only person in the audience who heard this, and it just destroyed the movie for me. 
I can't tell you that. <laughs> it was, it wasn't I mean, somebody in this room it? that worked on it. I wouldn't want to embarrass anybody. But um, it's it, it really it really sounded horrible. So what do you do in a situation where there's an out? I, I've had examples of this in my own career, and I always insist that the ADR is done outside if it's at all possible, uh, because it just it sounds completely different as a re-recording mixer. I can't make it sound good or natural if it's ADR'd in a room. I just can't do it. Just for, for what it's worth, um, if, it, if it is done in a room and it's uh, for an exterior scene, um, I always at least, at the very least, ask the ADR mixer to record tight miking um, so that I don't hear the room. Um, unfortunately, in a small ADR booth, you get reflections off the window and the walls. So a larger ADR stage, but tight miking, and even if somebody's way off in the distance, and I've heard this, I don't know, countless of times, oh, just go get off the microphone because they're in the distance. I'm like, no, no, stay tight to the mic. I'll add the distance. That I'll makes it, as, that makes it as neutral as possible, right? Yeah, so I, can... I just don't, I can't eliminate the room if you've got room in the recording. So get it tight mic'd and I can go from there. And there are amazing convolutional reverbs and all sorts of I things. I don't want to talk about convolutional reverbs. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> you don't want to get me into opinions. <laughs> this, I, I knew I misspoke when I said it. Okay, uh, so uh, a very basic topic here, but um, more and more it seems we're told, especially maybe in television production, that um, overlapping dialogue doesn't matter. And we shouldn't be concerned about overlaps. Uh, and I, I know it, it, it depends on case by case, on camera, off camera. But I'd like to hear from the post-production people uh, how much trouble overlapping dialogue can be and how much effort we should give towards, uh, you know, not, not having overlapping dialogue on our tracks. It's, that's circumstantial, I think. You know, it's, it's, it, you talk about fixing something. You know, there's ways of, of fixing it. The, the editor is going to put it together in a certain way that... The overlapping dialogue, if they're going for an image and the track that's recorded has the, it some kind of comedy, say, that has a lot of overlapping dialogue, we can help it fix it. We can do things that'll make it work. It, again, it's in the overall thing. If, if the speed and the pace of the scene is important, then we'll handle it. You know. Yeah, and to join in what she said, in that situation where the performance would suffer if you did it with a space and not overlapping, then maybe we go into the ISOs if we want to favor one person over the other. But if the picture editor in cutting is overlapping the overlaps, now I have two people talking and I'm hearing four voices, and now that's problematic right. <laughs> because now I have to ADR both sides or find an alt or whatever. What I always learned is it's just a question of um, how much flexibility um, do you want to give um, uh, post? Uh, primarily the, the, the picture editor. Um, because if you have all the overlapping and you have to live with it and it's not working once you've cut the scene together, then you don't have a lot of choices. You, you end up having to recut or do a lot of ADR or whatever. Because the other thing that, that I learned from Walter Murch was he said in a situation where you have all this overlapping dialogue, um, if if how an audience reacts to that works for the scene, um, then it's okay. But what happens is if you're trying to listen to the words and you're trying to understand what they're saying and the overlap is making that impossible, an audience just checks out until it's done and then they, then they get back into the scene. But uh, and if that doesn't work dramatically, then um, the overlaps were a problem. Just for what it's worth, um, this is a little, little trick. Here we go, secret time. Um, if, <laughs> if I go, if there's a lot of overlapping dialogue in a, a feature film that I'm doing in like 5.1, basic. Um, if I have separate uh, record, uh, separate tracks, I will, if there's three people talking kind of at once, I will take one person, their track, and shift it like two to three percent off center. It's not enough to ever sense any pan, but the ear, delineates that that person's on a different plane and all of a sudden the whole damn thing becomes clear. It's amazing. I think I like erred into that. It was an accident at one point. I'm like, whoa, I understand it. This is great. And so now I quite often use that as a, uh, a tool. 
You know, Gary, that's something which the really good actors do, and they do it on the set when they get into a scene when they're overlapping. I mean, this, the really skilled editors, I mean, actors that have done this, they know, they know, and I've even had them come to me and say, did you get that part where I really, because I was worried that she was talking, and you know, and I said, it was beautiful. And that's what ends up in the movie. Um, so, you know, you can get a lot of help from, even from the actors, it, if they're really smart. It's Courtney. also a coverage and separation and skill in all levels, as far as putting it together. So I think you'll get the most natural thing by diving into those tracks, seeing where there's areas where you can make it work editorially too. So, so that, that brings up the other thing about the fact that we used to do the master and then we would move in for coverage and the off-camera person was supposed to be quiet. and all. But now if you're shooting your coverage and your all-inclusive shot all at the same time, um, again, you've... Multiple takes. Multiple the, takes because yeah. the same thing doesn't happen twice. Right, exactly. The overlap is not the same. The, the big thing is if you are overlapping... So does that answer the question, Glenn, at all or not? No, not really. <laughs> if you are going to have an overlapping dialogue, though, you need to make sure everybody's on mic. That, that's that's the other thing as production mixers, yeah. yeah, to be able to use them. We have one over here now. Uh, a question about um, uh, ice managing the ISOs and script notes, particularly on TV, where you know there's a really limited uh, schedule for edit for sound edit. Um, is there any is there any point of diminishing returns in terms of Turning in so many so many ISOs where there's no time to review them for for the post production. Is there, is there any advantage to, to limiting that to some degree in order to make it easier to get to the usable stuff? And and then the other question is is uh, to what degree would uh, notes from the production mixer regarding like if you have a, a kind of a strange production mix you know that's that's like two booms and a bit of a radio here and a bit of a radio there or, or production notes of this is how I did it, this is how I, I pulled it together. Is that helpful in any way? Yeah, like I was referencing earlier, um, in those cases, if you can just send me an email about an upcoming episode, like a heads up, um, that's great. And as far as your ISO question, um, I would say continue to get everything you can possibly get and whether or not I have time or my dialogue editor has time to actually physically listen to every track, do it anyway because... You know, at some point, I may need to go spelunking and find that track. So it's great to have. <laughs> Hi, um, Gary, since you're uh, handing out tidbits of knowledge. Um, <laughs> um, so I know that you have a, uh, an amazing amount of feature experience, and you mix an incredible dialogue track. Um, but I also know that you have been working on some television in the last few years. Um, and with the new uh, requirements and limitations and limited dynamic range that's allowed in TV, um, and with respect to what we've all been saying about natural dynamics really being key to performance and capturing the audience, I wonder if you have any tidbits that you would like to share on how you've overcome the challenges of conforming to those deliverables and quality controls while retaining natural dynamic range. Um. I think in the in the terms of uh, television product, I uh, eliminated the idea of natural dynamic range some years ago because of the requirements. Um, but what what I what I started to do more than anything else was um, figure out what my tool set might be to enable me to sell that. Um, that pressure level, that 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 requirement. Um, what was really interesting when they first came out with these lec meters, and you know your show has to be like 24 or whatever it was, and I I thought, okay, well I'm going to play two or three shows and find out that I've done in the past and find out how they sit, and that's what made me realize that they used my shows in the past as the reference point because they just I don't know I think when you start out with a certain monitor level you know, consistent monitor level, that you are aware that it produces that inevitable product. For instance, when I'm doing TV, I'll monitor at uh, 79. You know, features are at 85, big room like this. I worked in here for many years. Um, but on television, I'll, I'll monitor at 79. Now, some, some people will be at 75. Some people will be at 80. 
What I know for a fact is that when I monitor at 79 and I work within my parameters, it's going to hit that number. I don't have to even look at it. It's going to hit that number. I'm consistent with my pressure level. I mix not by volume at all. It's a concept that I learned many, many years ago, and it took me two or three years to develop the understanding of what that meant. But I, list, I work by pressure level, and I have consistent pressure on my ears, and it's it inevitably ends up with like about a 3 dB range, whether somebody yells or whether somebody listens, uh, whispers. Um, so I work within that boundary constantly. And if I have my monitor level set correctly to start with, and I'm working with that consistent pressure level, I'm hitting that number every time. One, so one more question. Yeah. Hello. I'm a French producer mixer, and I just came here two days ago to be here today with you. And I just, thank you. And I just wanted to let you know that in Europe, especially my country in France, we have exactly the same concern, exactly the same things, same discussion that you have. And uh, I have two uh, questions. Uh, Sometimes, I'm, I'm normally working in with uh, Europa Corp, Luc Besson, and um, I did Taken movies and this kind of stuff. And sometimes it's possible to know who's going to be the uh, um, sound editors. Sometimes we don't know um, at the very beginning of the production. We know after a couple of weeks. And it's difficult because when you start in a movie, you need to have this discussion. That's what I think. It's really important. That's what you say. But sometimes it's not possible. So I don't know if here in the United States you know always who's going to be the crew, but it's not the case in Europe. I mean, not always, but sometimes. And second, for Lee, who is going, uh, who is going to have a lot of action movie like um, I did, uh, I just wanted to, to know if, uh, because sometimes for me it's just not possible to... Uh, to do some stuff with the FX member, who, excuse me for my English, please, but <laughs> I'm trying my best. And sometimes it's not possible to cut some uh, different things on set. So uh, is it always the case for you? I mean, is it always possible to do something on set or do you have sometimes also problem like me? I mean, <laughs> thank you, sorry for my English. No apology. Um, the, um, as far as knowing who, who's on the team, when you start a project, it's different on every, um, every uh, I mean, certainly uh, an ongoing episodic TV show that's maybe in its second or third season or whatever, um, you probably have a better idea, right, of the people that are involved or, you know, yeah. unless they've been removed <laughs> or something. Um, and on feature films, if you're, Depending on the nature of the uh, of the movie, you may um, you may be working with a lot of the same people in on the production, and also that you know who your all your post people, uh, and they're on board uh, right away. Um, and as far as whether you have to um, whether you're in situations where you can't record um, live production dialogue that works, um, then you you have ADR as a tool. Um, I, you know, but, I I don't know about I might have misinterpreted, but. Um, primarily the production mixers, when they can get some effects, it really helps us, that's great. But they're really, uh, my understanding anyway, their serious focus is on getting the dialogue on, on the set more than anything else, just grabbing really good dialogue. Except that and we... that's, that's my biggest um, you know, joy about getting work from these guys is they give me great dialogue. I'm not looking for any effects being recorded on the set at all. I think that your question was about when effects get in the way of recording the dialogue. And that happens a lot in action movies, as I was bringing up with the Spoker Boats. But um, like in a particular case on The Patriot, we were shooting these scenes out in fields. And in order to create a morning a ground fog, we had um, smoke. Um, we had the whole area basically on these uh, squirrel cages, which are um, fans that run through these hoses that then have holes punched in them and create ground fog. Well, they make an enormous racket, but 
there were times when you could keep the amount of ground fog up and dial the fans down, dip it for the lines, and you wouldn't lose the level of ground fog. So I had my effects department on Comtex reading sides. They had never done that before. We, 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 did, we did the same thing and, on The Last Samurai. And you know what? They were great. They were just like boom men following the cues. And they would dip it down, keep the smoke level up, bring it up, and we didn't have, it didn't sound like a fan anymore. It didn't sound like a motor. It just sounded like ambient noise. And that was the thing. Once we took the motor out, then the tracks were usable. It's called cooperation. There Absolutely. you go. You, we bring, bring, bring the, uh, the, the effects people into our team also. And when they get on board, it's great. Because, um, you know, even if it's just dialing down an e-fan, you know, again, I, I've had them read the sides, you know. Put a Comtech on them. and We're, we're all doing the same know? thing. We're all making the movie and, together. And, they, and, and the good effects people love it because they feel like, yeah, I've, really, I've done something like, you know, I didn't just turn it up to 10 and walk away. You know, I mean, it's... Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Please. Thanks for tuning in and listening to this panel discussion from last year's Mix Magazine Sound for Film event. You can hear more conversations with sound designers, composers, and directors on the Soundworks Collection podcast on iTunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com. Thanks again to our sponsor, Rode Microphones, for sponsoring this podcast series, providing premium audio products at an accessible price, enabling people from around the world to achieve their creative goals. With mics for studio, video recording, and podcasting, you're bound to find the mic you need. To find out more, visit road.com.